Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get exclusive access to regular bonus episodes, including an initiation into the world of rare book collecting, the chance to expand your reading horizons with recommendations from our team of specialised and passionate booksellers, hand-picked classic interviews from our archive, and an insight into what makes your favourite writers tick as they answer searching questions from our cafe's Proust questionnaire. You can now sign up directly in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or for users of other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to all three are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. What is lightning? It's a momentary strike, loud, explosive, blinding, and gone as quickly as it arrives. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's a result of a charged climate, hot fronts colliding with cold, the build-up of electricity in the air until the status quo as it stands just cannot hold. And so, boom. Which is why Lightning Striking is the perfect title for Lenny Kay's new book about 10 transformative moments in rock and roll. Because in the book, Kay beautifully describes the bolts themselves. Elvis, boom. The Beatles, boom. The New York Dolls, MC5, Iggy, The Pistols, boom, 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 boom. But he also gives us a meticulously researched account of the climate that gave rise to them. The cities, the gathering places, the tensions of class and race, the technological innovations. And of course, he gives us his story in this history. Because as a founding member of Patti Smith and her band, as well as a seasoned rock and roll writer, Lenny Kay has a perspective on this world-shattering musical moment like no other. I'm delighted to say Lenny Kay joins us today. Welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Adam, always happy to be here in uh, Shakespeare and Company universe. Yeah, it, it's, it's exactly. Universe is the word because we're doing this virtually, but we will uh, we will have you back in the shop one of these days. That's, I always remember when I came there and read from my uh, crooner book, You Call It Madness, and mm-hmm. sang a few songs and how how wonderful it was to, uh, to be in such an honored literary establishment. Well, we long for the days when we can do it again. Hopefully not far off. Amen. <laughs> so yeah. let's talk about lightning striking. So when you're writing a history of rock and roll, or at least the history of 10 transformative moments in rock and roll, you need to decide when you're going to start it. Um, so you begin in Cleveland, 1952, and then hop straight into Memphis a couple of years later. Why did you choose this time and this place as your uh, jumping off point? For me, Cleveland is kind of like the uh, prologue when <clears throat> this music, which uh, is variously uh, kind of swing blues, jump blues, uh, mingling with a little bit of, say, country boogie, when it actually gets a definition, a name, Mm. uh, when it becomes something that's still informing, but it's still, especially in Cleveland, in Alan Freed's world, in the first rock and roll riot that uh, I talk about in 1952, um, it still hasn't figured itself out. It's still mostly rhythm and blues Mm -hmm. uh, given a new name so it can appeal to a more biracial audience. Mm -hmm. It's not until that that moment of conception in Sun Studios where uh, Elvis Presley and Bill Black and Scotty Moore are trying to figure out who Elvis is 
and Sam Phillips in the control room is kind of urging them to do something different. And he's mm -hmm. looking for, he's looking for something. It's a great moment. And then Elvis starts strumming nervously the mm -hmm. opening chords to that's all right, mama. And suddenly you hear a sound that it, it's not really anything, but what would be rock and roll. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not really rhythm and blues, even though the song comes from a forties R and B song. It's not really country music because it's got a propulsion and a and a beat and a sensibility. And Elvis, his voice is so otherworldly. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like uh, you watch mutation taking place on mm -hmm. July fifth, nineteen fifty four. And when you um, when you came up with the idea of the book, because as I said, it's so meticulously researched. Was it clear to you immediately that it would begin this July 1954 or did it come out of the research that you were kind of you were looking for the moment and then after a while you just you just hit on it? It, it kind of revealed itself. I mean, when you look at the evolution of rock and roll, you can see there are sea changes in how the music is styled, received, how it evolves. And, um, you know, it wasn't very hard to see, well, in 1954, this happened. In 1957, uh, New Orleans, which had been kind of the uh, the B-side of the birth mm -hmm. of rock and roll, you know, that's when it kind of finds its metier. Uh, you know, the English invasion, the summer of love, uh, punk rock. It, it, just looking back over the history uh, it seemed to me that those were the flashpoints, those mm -hmm. locuses of energy uh, that that happened and and changed the shape and form and direction of the music. You know, there are others, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I didn't go to uh, the Bronx in mm -hmm. in uh, in the 70s and see Cool Herc, uh, mm -hmm. you know, talking over uh, breakbeats, uh, birthing hip hop. Um, I didn't go to Chicago. I didn't mm -hmm. go to to uh, Boston or even Los Angeles, even though, mm -hmm. you know, some of those are like major music centers. But sure. I just felt like this was where you could you could construct a narrative that showed mm -hmm. the sea changes in how the music was performed, played and created a new generational audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one thing I was going to ask you about a little bit later, but since you mentioned it, I'll, I'll bring it here, is, is the places that you didn't go. Uh, and the one that I think um, stood out for me, just because I, you know, it's kind of my center of uh, musical interest. I was expecting uh, Dylan going electric to, to feature in there. Um, and I was just, <laughs> I'm curious to know, like when you, um, do you see this as kind of your history of rock and roll in a way, like the kind of um, very much the kind of the history of rock and roll as seen through through Lenny Kay's eyes and Lenny Kay's experience. I definitely do. Um, you know, I mean, I am a participant. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to delve into things that I didn't understand personally. Mm. Uh, it's kind of a weird low-end memoir. I wanted to be a minor character in it because I was in San Francisco mm -hmm. in 67. I was in CBGB. Uh, you know, when you plan a tour, even with a band, you have an itinerary. You mm -hmm. can't go everywhere. Otherwise, you'll be on the road forever and never <laughs> get a chance to uh, reflect upon it. You know, to be honest, I would have liked to have gone to Paris in the early 1960s mm -hmm. and see how Johnny Holiday 
you know, and uh, <laughs> Sylvie Vartan, uh, they birthed the uh, Yeah Yeah movement. That, to me, is also a very important part of the, the narrative of this music. But I just thought, these are the scenes that I know that affected me personally as a musician mm-hmm. and an appreciator of music. And, you know, I mean, as someone else would, would have a different... Uh, would have a different journey, but it's my mm. journey, my kind of tour of of what I consider the most evocative moments mm-hmm. in rock and roll that also tells the story of this music that uh, I celebrate with. Yeah. And I think that's definitely one of the, the strengths of this remarkable book is the fact that sort of it is the the coming together of of your story and the kind of the more macro uh, story of rock and roll. I think that's kind of that personal element uh, really gives us a sense of how transformative and how explosive these uh, these musical developments were. And how it influenced someone on a very individual level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, you know, to be honest, I am who I am. You know, I, I became a musician in in the years when the guitar bass and two guitar uh, and drums combo was the my preferred way of of looking at the world. I don't mm-hmm. pretend it's inclusive, um, but on the other hand, I also didn't want to write a memoir. You know, I'm yeah, not that, yeah. I'm not interested in the details of my life. You know, uh, I, I'm interested in how my life reflected in the mirror that is rock and roll and music. Yeah, which in a way is perfect for this kind of genre of music because rock and roll music is something which is experienced both deeply personally and as the part of a crowd, as part of a movement. And I also like these these scenes that I chose because a lot of them are off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. They're not like some construct of the music industry in a in an office building in New York City or Los Angeles. These are homegrown organic scenes. Uh, Brian Eno has this concept, it's called scenius, where Mm. you look at a moment in time, not through the geniuses, you know, the top down look, you know, the, it's, you know, the Beatles, you know, in in Liverpool or Nirvana and Pearl Jam from Seattle. You look at the undercurrents, Mm. it's not just the bands on stage, it's the audience, what the audience calls forth from them. how they look, uh, you know, uh, it's it's an ecology of ideas and influence that mm-hmm. makes these moments in time and space take root and then have their influence felt all over the world. Yeah. And that's one thing that comes across very clearly. And I guess it's another reason that um, lightning striking is such a such a perfect metaphor in a way, because is how important place is to these movements so we, we mentioned cleveland we mentioned memphis and uh, you know you've mentioned uh, uh liverpool you mentioned seattle of course new orleans features um and yeah it seemed that sort of well i guess how important for you is the sort of the the geography the topography the um the kind of the the character of the city to birthing these these movements it's very very important and you know in the case of the detroit chapter you have a city that was roiled with riot that was uh you know kind of at the end of the 60s it was the american come down in a certain mm. way all this optimism that surrounded san francisco was was uh, revealed in political strife mm. and uh you know what can one say 
basically, um, you know, I'm always into the local. I, I really mm. like, you know, when, when I'm in New York City, I, I very seldom go to see the, the big bands playing mm. up at the Enormo Drome. Yeah. You know, I like to go to the clubs. I like to hang out. I, I feel, you know, uh, there's a casualness and an intimacy toward these scenes. And it's really kind of where I always hoped I would be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's how I judge these scenes, especially when in the, you know, the book really exists in pre-internet time. Mm-hmm. So, sure. you know, when I heard about the bands in San Francisco, uh, like the poster I had on my wall in New Jersey, uh, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Quicksilver Messenger Service on the New Year's Eve separating 1966 into the Summer of Love. I wanted to be there, but Man. I really had no idea how the dead sounded or or the Quicksilver sounded. And even Jefferson Airplane had just released one kind of folky record that mm. didn't really display what they were about. So I wanted to be there. You know, today I could you know, type in San Francisco and be there, you know, the, you know, the posting of the band's performance from uh, the night before. Uh, So I'm wondering whether the concept of geography even matters that much these days in Mm -hmm. these, in this time when communication is much more, uh, uh, you know, much more spontaneous. Yeah. One of the nice things, yeah. yeah, go on. I was going to say it's um it's very easy I think for people um who remember sort of music listening and music uh collecting when it was uh you know whether it was vinyl in my case it was it was cassette you know it was listening to that listening for that song on the radio and trying to hit record before it was more <laughs> than a few bars in to make sure you had your copy and and tried to cut off the end before the DJ came in and spoke over it um it's very I think it's very easy to sort of um uh, to imagine that there's been a kind of yeah disintegration um, in in in, a, in that sort of that sort of urge because of the internet, and yet I do find it difficult to, in my experience as a music listener and a music collector, I do find it difficult to kind of separate that quest, if you like, for you know what to hear the music, to get hold of the music, to track down the bands. I find it hard to separate that from the experience of of the music itself. Well, you know, it's a new template of communication. It will change the way we listen to music in the 21st century. Uh, You know, no longer will you have some uh, rural mountaineer singing folk songs and then getting discovered and then getting disseminated. But, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, mass communication will homogenize our soundtrack in a certain way. Uh, And on the other hand, it 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 will kind of speed up uh, this sense that we're a global community and this is the music that we listen to. Uh, mm. I just feel like a lot of these scenes that I talk of, they were isolated and insular for a year or two until they could really discover their identity. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I can only say, like, say, from the CBGB scene where, you know, for the first couple of years, it was just these misfit bands playing for each other in a club, making their mistakes, uh, trading members, uh, figuring themselves out. And so by the time the year or two of kind of uh, orientation passed, they had something unique that didn't sound like 
something from a neighboring city or even another country. Mm -hmm. uh, it had a distinct personality and style. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, is something that really should be nurtured um, mm -hmm. because that's when you get things that are not like, not predictable. Mm. I mean, uh, all of these scenes, they kind of figure themselves out. They they come together like uh, amorphous uh, cosmic dust forming into a planet, mm. and then they go off. And but by then, their 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 music is kind of understood. They're on their way to becoming a cliche or mm. the stereotype of the scene, and that's when it comes time to kind of move up the next level on this mm. uh, spiral staircase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, an observation near the beginning of the book where you talk about sort of a musical generation lasting as if something between two and five years or something like that, yeah. which, which seems kind of, you know, when you think of, I don't know, bands, uh, bands like the Stones or whoever who are still like touring, what, 60, <laughs> 60 odd years uh, down the line. Like it seems, it seems like a, a distressingly short amount of time for a musical generation. And yet it feels... It feels kind of right in a way, and again connected to this this idea of lightning striking. You know, it's it's fleeting and it's explosive, and that's maybe how it should be. Well, you know, the Stones and the Beatles, and you know, all these long live groups, whether they're even still together, but they they outlive the scenes that birthed them in a certain way. They're they're the ones who kind of move away from home, but a, a lot of you know the scenes, their musical moment. It's, it's about five years. And to me, you know, most of the action happens in the uh, terrible twos. Mm -hmm. And then by the five years, it's understood. It's gone around the world. People have started using uh, the architecture of these musics to build other musics that sound similar, but are starting to evolve differently. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm a big fan of, of musical progression. Uh, you know, I, I'm not one to say, oh, music was better back in the old days. No, mm -hmm. it was just back in the old days, which, yeah. you know, I mean, there's always great music out there. You might have to search for it. It might not be your taste. Mm -hmm. It might not be the guitar music that gives me nurture. It might be made by uh, a machine and, and filtered and, and, you know, changed. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, as much as music evolves and changes stylistically it's it's inner concerns are pretty much the same mm -hmm. uh you know it's mostly you know i love this person this person doesn't love me <laughs> what can i do about it you know i'm i'm restless who am i mm -hmm. these these are the you know despite sea changes in style songs are pretty much about the same thing they've always been which is mm -hmm. uh you know uh the mating dance and uh, what happens after the dance mates. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming back to that idea of um, sort of music and scenes being kind of uh, birthed out of a kind of a community in a way. I mean, one thing that sort of is um, essential to whenever when talking about the history of rock and roll and you talk about it in the book is um, the concept of race. And I think particularly um in the United States, I mean, every every country has its own dynamics in the way that uh, it, it handles it handles race and it handles integration. But it seemed that particularly in the um, in the early fifties, there was something going on in the way that uh, Black America and White America 
communicated or didn't communicate that allowed for well, maybe I, tell me if this is a fair description, but was essentially a sort of um, something that was birthed in black culture, sort of jumping across to to mainstream white culture. I, I think that's too simplistic. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the cultures interact in a certain way. You know, there's a lot of movement from black culture to white culture, but hey, Charlie Patton played songs off the vaudeville stage. Sure. Uh, you know, Hank Williams, uh, uh, you know, uh, influenced the delivery of, uh, <clears throat> you know, Chuck Berry, I would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of give and take despite the the rigid boundaries of race. To me, I believe in a music that that has it all that, you know, I am a white you know, male um, performer of a certain age. All of this will influence the kind of music that I enjoy. But then on the other hand, I I love reggae music and reggae music started out by, you know, listening to broadcasts of American music and hearing how and how it transmutes. I'm, I'm always one that likes music that miscegenates in a certain mm-hmm. way. I don't like music that's very rigidly defined. Um, mm-hmm. There was a group from uh, Texas in the 60s named the Red Crayola, and their lead singer once said, and it kind of come one of my guiding mottos, definitions define limit. Mm-hmm. I would like myself to be able to pick and choose from whatever music's uh, come come to me um, <clears throat> and make my music as I would hope that someone listens to what I make and, you know, understands it through their eyes. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that makes us human in yeah. a certain way. I don't want to say, well, you know, I can't listen to uh, sitar music because I'm not Indian. Well, I might not mm-hmm. understand some of the subtleties, but I understand the feeling just like you know bollywood definitely borrows from uh, western traditions mm-hmm. i'm i'm about erasing borders i'm about yeah. like having the expanse to choose whatever what whatever you know music's kind of tickle your inner uh, musician yeah 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 one thing i think that um i got the impression anyway that sort of allowed that sort of um sort of uh back and forth and communication was this kind of um commonality of experience on this on the subject of class as well actually and there's one thing that comes across very clearly is sort of rock and roll as uh proudly as the kind of the the, the sort of the working man's uh music uh, as you say you know it's sort of um you know it's easy to to learn three chords and play most songs you know the guitar it's uh, you know, okay, they're, they're not they're not cheap, but they're an accessible music compared to uh, instrument compared to the violin, let's say, or or the cello or something like that. But also the the experiences that we're being talked about, whether that be in kind of you know in blues music or whether that be in country music, that thing of kind of you know sort of working hard and getting screwed over and picking yourself up, seem to allow that sort of uh, communication between uh, across uh, sort of racial barriers in in the United States. I mean, it's very complex. You know, you just can't divide things racially, classly, genderly. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we are a melting pot of of cultural influence, especially mm-hmm. these days when you can definitely poke your computer key and listen to a music from a completely different culture and mm-hmm. try to place yourself within that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's that's one of the uh, the beautiful things about the ease of accessibility. I, I love Arabic music. Um, and being Jewish, it's always been interesting to me that if you listen to a radio station from the Middle East, as I have, you really can't tell whether it's it's Arabic or Israeli music. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the kind of thing where I, I look for the similarities. You know, you can always say, yeah, this there's a difference and this person was, you know, uh, unfairly uh, compensated for this song being gone over there and vice versa. But the fact is, is that, you know, we, we have a, a cornucopia of musical style to mm-hmm. choose from, to learn from, to see the world through another musician's eyes. And perhaps that will bring us together as a human mm-hmm. race, something we badly, badly need these days. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Even it seems, um, you know, with we talked about the internet earlier and the kind of the increase in possibilities of communication, and yet somehow we seem <laughs> we seem less able to communicate and more divided than uh, than ever. Um, which puts me in mind of something that also struck me while while reading Lightning Striking was that sense of the sort of the changes in rock and roll, the transformative moments at times being accompanied with a by a technological change or a um a cultural shift and so particularly in so in the early days of kind of the 50s and 60s it seemed to me two things were really important which was kind of television uh, as a sort of a growing medium and the i'm not quite sure the word invention is the right word but the kind of the invention let's say of the teenager in a sense as yeah. as the concept, but both of these seem to, I don't know, seem to turbocharge this um, this burgeoning movement. And the forty five record, um, mm-hmm. you know, the accepted uh, disseminator of social grace. Um, yeah, I mean, you you can't take music out of its social context. Uh, obviously, in the sixties, when a sense of uh, freedom and a sense of possibility uh, circled. Of the world, uh, music reflected that. Uh, it kind of went in terms of, uh, you know, it's it's not just three minute singles. We could make a long piece of music that had artistic aspirations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the fifties, yes, you had a teenage audience. Suddenly, I mean, it's not that teenagers didn't scream for Frank Sinatra, <clears throat> but he was essentially geared toward an adult audience. Mm. Um, in, a, in the fifties with rock and roll, it skewed teenage very quickly, including for many R and B artists, uh, you know, say Chuck Berry or even Bo Diddley or little Richard, they skewed younger. Uh, all mm. of a sudden the target audience was, uh, adolescent with all, uh, you know, all the goods and the craziness that mm. embodies, but, you know, in the same way in the seventies, which, there was a certain deflation of hope that, mm. you know, the 60s seemed to have. And so the music got tougher and harder and and more angry. 
um, you know, this is <clears throat> essentially uh, our progression. You, uh, all art really reflects the social milieu that it comes mm-hmm. out of. You know, what, what we, the answers we seek through looking at ourselves in the mirror of a song. And so mm. I tried in in the book, you know, to kind of set the scene for how this happened outside of a musical culture and then how the musical culture started reflecting that because really in the end we sing songs because they are who we are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, and or ho- who we hope to be. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and that's, and that's the way music revolves around. Mm-hmm. Of course, obviously, on top of being um, an art form, music is, uh, at least for, for certain people, or some, it, a business. I mean, so the, the, the industry was definitely something which has, you know, we follow <laughs> the development of in, um, in, your, uh, in, in your book. Uh, I, I was put in mind when I was reading it of something, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase him because I couldn't find the quote, but then uh, Naomi Klein said, uh, about hip hop, I think she said it in uh, No Logo, something like, you know, I, I would have loved to have seen what hip hop would have become if it hadn't been mined so quickly for its gold. Like, I think she had this idea that sort of the industry saw its potential immediately and sort of showered showered it with money and sort of and it her mind to sort of distorted it. And I wonder when you were talking about sort of earlier about the sort of the scenes kind of needing to move on, is it in a way that they the scene becomes too much, you know, it sort of, it, it becomes too much allied with business and we need something sort of pushing against that in a way. Well, we, it is called the music business instead of mm. the music <laughs> art, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I don't overestimate that, uh, you know, to be honest. Yeah. Artists want to be remunerated. They mm. want, they want the business to work for them. Um, we are workers in a certain sense. Uh, and yeah, sometimes the easy way is taken out. It's too easy to prepackage something. That said, usually by the time it's prepackaged, it's over. You know, mm-hmm. it's, and, and, and so underneath is where all the, uh, the psychic change takes place. Mm-hmm. I, I must say that, yeah, if hip hop got mined really quickly, well, there's been at least four or five different hip hop generations since mm-hmm. the 1980s. Uh, you know, um, Tupac did not sound like Grandmaster Flash. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, today where hip hop is really ubiquitous, uh, it doesn't sound at all like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. what it sounded like five years ago. Mm-hmm. This, this is kind of the sense of, of human consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I usually actually the, the music business at large seems really unprepared for any new things. And so mm-hmm. it's usually taken by surprise over <laughs> and over and over again mm-hmm. and has to rethink who they are. Um, you know, and these days when actually the real business of music seems you know, I mean, record companies are, are shells of their former self and, mm. and artists pop up from all kinds of different uh, ways of communication. It's all playing catch up. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, nobody really knows what's happening and uh, it will s- sort itself out. But 
you know, I, I just think, yeah, I mean, by the time the music business cottons on to change, it's been so well defined what they go for that, yeah, there, it's it's over before it's mm. begun. You know, yeah. to me, when when a concept like grunge uh, makes itself known, and they all start signing grunge acts, well, you know, it's it's just ready for revolution. Then mm-hmm. it's ready for something else. Uh, you know, the the six or seven bands that are part of this quote movement will go on to become world class artists, mm-hmm. but. You know, the rest of the bands in, in any particular city will will be still there making yeah. music, making. And, you know, if it, if you don't fit into the definition, well, might not be good for you uh, in the short term. But in the long term, perhaps it will make you become something else that you need to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One thing um, that struck me uh, about the... Um, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Little Richard earlier as well. It's sort of like certain of these artists uh, seem almost utterly resistant to be to being packaged in a way. So uh, the descriptions of sort of Little Richard, um, his performances compared to his his recorded music and his recorded music is, you know, it's it's perfectly <laughs> it's, it's perfectly listable. It's exciting. It's great. But the the descriptions you give of his uh, his live performance, <laughs> they sound like something else. I mean, this is on a this is on a different level. And it's uh, yeah, it's just I, I there's something I, I really enjoyed about what was clearly a struggle for record producers and music industry people to kind of to try and contain and try and channel this this force in a way well it's 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 not easy to make a record you know that i mean it's not live uh as when i uh work as a record producer and a band comes to me and said well we just want to sound like we do live and <laughs> we're going to set up in the studio and play our set and uh, choose the best track i say well have a good time because to <laughs> me a record is an illusion of the perfect performance and mm. you're not going to get that just playing live in a studio to no audience at a reduced volume, trying to communicate with your fellow musicians through earphones. It, mm. It's not that records are records for a reason. Uh, you know, you can you can manipulate them. You can overdub. You can do a lot of things. It's great to have that perfect live performance. And certainly with Patti Smith. We have preserved several mm. incredible live performances, uh, but that doesn't mean that was the one time we went in and played that song, you know, for something like Birdland off of Horses. Yeah, it started out as a little three-minute poem with the piano and guitar accompaniment. And because our producer, John Cale, said, well, if you want to record live, you better record something that you've never done before. And he kept pushing us and pushing us. And around the six minute mark of the song, we thought, man, we've had it. And he said, no, let's keep going. (laughs) And finally, it turned into the cut on horses that, to me, captured the apex of that song. Mm. Um, You know, you have to you have to pick your pick your times to go for it. But, Mm. um, you know, in the end, uh, it's always it's always a challenge to to. become who you need to be within a studio and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know because uh and that's the glory of live performance and personally mm. i wish there was more live performance these days because <laughs> i miss it i really oh, do yeah. 
I mean, the, yeah. the fact that we got to play the Rex in Paris for two nights was such a a blessing, and the mm. people were so welcoming, and it was such a exhilarating freeing of mm. uh, the musical spirit. You know, I, I'm just I can't wait to have it happen again. Yeah. Oh God. Same here. I mean, it's a great venue as well, the Rex. It's uh, oh beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I, although I mean, you know. That said, one thing I was listening um, while reading the book to the uh, the playlist that um, Lee Braxton, your your British editor, has put together mm-hmm. of a lot of the um, a lot of the tracks uh, mentioned in the book. And one thing that really struck me was how fresh all of the songs still sound in a way. And and it did make me think that I wonder if that is the sort of you know even though you you going from uh, you know sort of early rock and roll right up to grunge, we're sort of almost sort of unrecognizably, uh, un- you know, unrecognizably from the same genre. And yet what each of them had in common was this kind of, yeah, this this energy and this freshness, um, which perhaps could only be contained at the, at, at, at the start or at a particular moment in a movement. Well, you know, great records are great records. They'll communicate to you whether it's the hot hit off the radio uh, <laughs> from today or you know, a, a great, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson from, uh, you know, almost 100 years ago. Uh, it's great to be able to to capture a moment. That's the word record. I always like mm-hmm. it's like a record of a time and place. Mm. You know, you can imagine uh, Robert Johnson sitting in that San Antonio hotel room and, you know, facing the corner, singing into a microphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can feel the the vibrations in the air. I mean, especially for me, the uh, New Orleans chapter where you can go mm. to the studio on the edge of the French Quarter where uh, J&M uh, Music, where Cosmo Matassa made records with uh, Fats Domino and Little Richard and Lloyd Price and Shirley and Lee. And, uh, you know, you can just, and it's, of course, it's, it's weird because it's a, it's a laundromat now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you go to the back room and there in, the, you know, amongst the dryers, they have pictures of, uh, you know, some of the greats who recorded there. And, uh, you know, you think, man, in this little room, history was made. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the subject of um, your sort of stepping your foot into that history. So like in the book, we get a few sort of tentative mentions as you're sort of you're being bored and growing up and slowly sort of having your first experiences with rock and roll. But as you said earlier, it seemed to be the the sort of the Grateful Dead and the the San Francisco scene of the of the 60s, which really seemed to be the um, the transformative moment in a way for you. Um, and of course, this is a uh, sort of a scene and a place which is very special to Shakespeare and Company as well, because of course George Whitman, who founded Shakespeare and Company, was great friends with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who okay, founded the City Lights, and you know there was a lot of back and forth, uh, particularly of the poets. So you know Ginsburg spent a lot of time at the shop, Burroughs and Kerouac uh, were here. So sort of we feel even sort of you know many decades later, and uh, you know a whole ocean between us, very connected as well to to that scene and that and that moment but what do you think what it was for you on a personal level that meant that there was uh something about that moment that place and the band the grateful dead that uh that sort of flicked your switch so to speak <laughs> well i was the perfect age of course mm-hmm. i was uh you know just 20 
Uh, I, I had always admired the literary aspirations of uh, the Beats. You know, re reading, like many of my generation, On the Road was a, a transformative book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was great to go there. <laughs> it was great to go there with the sense of possibility that uh, believing that love could transform the world, regardless mm -hmm. of how idealistic it seems now and <clears throat> how impossible. But um, <clears throat> I don't know, it was just a, the, this, the kind of insular way in which the San Francisco bands interacted. I really took to that. And when I suddenly, to my own surprise, found myself a part of the similar kind of melting pot in CBGB, mm. I, I almost said, wow, I, how could I actually be here when <laughs> I wanted to be there? Um, it, it, I mean, I, I believe San Francisco is, is a smart city. Mm. I, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate bookstores. I appreciate literature. I appreciate poetry. And I have spent quality time in city lights. And, uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, I, I felt, I felt a kinship with the, mm. uh, with the sense of avant-garde exploration there. Uh, and mm. I found it also within the bands, uh, the Grateful Dead have as much to do with the sprawling improvisations of the Patti Smith group as, as, you know, as Motown or, or Rolling Stones or mm. our, our own band generation in the 70s and continuing on to today. Mm. That that transition from the sort of the 60s to the 70s, I mean, you've you've mentioned it a few times in this conversation, that sort of, that moment of, I don't know if it would be necessarily kind of loss of hope or the sort of the the the, en the ending or the kind of the shriveling of a dream. It's But it seems, it seems, um, I mean, so firstly, something which has given rise to a lot of very interesting sort of art and writing. So it seemed like someone like Hunter S. Thompson seemed particularly kind of focused on on that particular kind of the mm -hmm. corruption of the dream. Uh, Thomas Pynchon in uh, Inherent Vice, a similar thing. And in Britain, of course, there's a uh, great film uh, with Nail and I, which is, you know, all about, again, that sort of that moment where the where the dream goes sour. And yet from the dream going sour this new new strikes of lightning in a way so this even the you know the whether we're talking about detroit in 1969 with with mc5 and then with you know iggy and the stooges coming or what was going on at uh, cbgb's uh, a little bit you know a, a few years later like it seems that almost like from the from the rubble in a way like you know life finds a way like the, you know the shoots will will inevitably grow up well, I think that's how uh, we we advance culturally. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we understand something, and then we understand it too well. Uh, it turns sour, or it turns hopeful, depending on where you are on the uh, on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we we all attempt to kind of deal with the new paradigm that mm -hmm. that we're gifted. Um, you know, to me. It's it's almost too it's it's too easy to kind of make these evolutions because mm -hmm. you know that one is going to react against what came before, mm -hmm. just as you know 
it will be reacted for what comes in the future. Um, mm-hmm. That's how, you know, mu- musics have a lifeline. I, I do believe in uh, that rock and roll as a cultural force is now kind of put within parentheses. It will be a music that <clears throat> will sound and and be associated with the second half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that it's over or dead or that there won't be incredible interpretations of of its advances. But I think really everything that's been done with an electric guitar has probably been done twice. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that, and it is the foundational instrument of, of rock and roll, but that doesn't mean that the musics, as you mentioned before, it's ease of playing, the fact that you can learn three chords in five minutes and construct the bare bones of a song and yet spend a lifetime understanding all its intricacies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it will survive. But like any musical movement, uh, Dixieland jazz, uh, country blues, mm-hmm. uh, bebop jazz, um, doo-wop group harmony, it mm-hmm. has its its beginnings and its endings. And that doesn't mean, like we also spoke, that these records don't thrill us when we Mm -hmm. hear them again, that we don't say, oh man, that is just fantastic. And you sing along and you, you know, maybe doing a little dancing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's, it's a continuum. And Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate the continuance of that continuum. I mean, really it's, I, I, I don't want the music of today to sound like 50 years ago. Right. I wanted yeah. to understand it and appreciate it, but I believe every generation has to create their own way of sounding mm-hmm. with, with, within, you know, within their moment in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You put me in mind of something that um, I, I remember Billy Bragg saying in an interview. Uh, someone had asked him something like, you know, where are all the protest songs these days? And he was like, I think, you know, with the implication that basically uh, the kids of today were not protesting enough. And what what Billy said was like, well, you know, it's not that, you know, the 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 protest, the urge to protest isn't there, but like, you know, when he said when he did it, that was his only means of protest was picking up a guitar and writing a song. That was his only means of expression. Whereas now we have at our fingertips so many more ways to kind of get our thoughts out there, our ideas out there, which are quicker and probably easier than writing a song and learning the song and playing the song. Um, and it definitely does seem that something particularly, I guess, in the 70s and particularly driving certain of the punk bands that sort of there was... There was the artistic side of it, but there was also the that attitude, the protest, the kind of um, yeah, there the, 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 there was something something let's say uh, sort of social underlying it too. Um, is that something? Do you think this sort of throughout the history of rock and roll uh, has been there, or and is kind of almost necessary to? to the to the expression of rock and roll and is that perhaps also one of the reasons why as you say today perhaps that's why you know that it's it's associated with that particular period of our history well rock and roll is definitely uh has its share of confrontation and protest and the voice of the people and stuff Mm. um today you know i don't (laughs) i don't really know i'm not a kid 
<laughs> I, 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 uh, I love to listen to, to the music of the moment, but, uh, you know, uh, it's a different landscape now. And uh, I would hope, and, you know, just is something from my thing, that you would see more use of music in addressing social change, social justice, uh, you know, the problems of this world, beginning with climatology. That said, musicians are not politicians. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous to, you know, for a minute there, you know, musicians were leading the cultural charge. Now, the cultural charge is all over the place. <laughs> and I can't, I, I can't say that, you know, I, I would, you know, want a musician to, to set my political agenda, because mm -hmm. in the end, we're all human and we have completely different concerns. I do mm -hmm. hope that, that a current generation finds its voice, because there's a lot of things that need vocalization, because mm -hmm. otherwise, this world will be, uh, you know, heading straight to hell. And, uh, you know, you just look at the papers and you realize divisiveness, you know, an internet which is supposed to bring us all together seems to have proved completely opposite. But again, this is the job of art to hold a mirror up to society at large. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully there will be voices that will protest. But on the other hand, you know, it has to come not from musicians, but from the people, mm. you know, mm. I mean, in a sense, the musicians of the 60s reflected uh, social upheaval and mm. uh, and took on the mantle of, of that and more power to to them. And, you know, with Patty, we've certainly tried to deliver a positive uh, ennobling message mm -hmm. uh, and um, we'll continue to do so. But you know, truly, it, 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 we, it, we can't turn it around. It's not the musicians who lead. It's mm -hmm. the people who lead. Mm -hmm. And then the musicians reflect their energy. Uh -huh. The people have the power, you might say. Oh, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> to use I'd like wisely. To... <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk about uh, you and Paddy and, and, and the band. And I mean, you mentioned CBGBs earlier and you mentioned the, the power of, um, of the scene. Uh, but one thing that struck me when listening back to 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 you guys and the and the scene at the time was sort of how different you and Paddy and your group sounded compared to a lot of the bands. Like you sort of you can um, there's a moment where you, you you're over in the UK actually and you say like you know we sing to the bands who will be the Clash, the Sex Pistols, the Slits, uh, and yet. I, it, it's odd. I, I, I don't think of uh, of your music as sort of fitting neatly within within that scene. Is it? Is it sort of? Is is that a way that you would have viewed yourselves as well as sort of sort of of being part of the scene, sort of physically and sort of temporarily, but sort of being musically, artistically slightly detached in some way? Well, I I think of us as a bridge. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we we definitely bridge some of the concerns of the 60s uh, in terms of our band. You know, we had long stretches of improvisation. We were very influenced by things like free jazz, uh, certainly the Grateful Dead, um, mm. poetry, uh, 
a, a lot of elements went into our music. I mean, we never set out to be a rock and roll band when we began, mm-hmm. myself and Patty, and then Richard Saul. We were a strange kind of performance art mm-hmm. that grew organically over the course of uh, more than a year and a half into a band so that by the time we had all the pieces of the puzzle, including the uh, almighty drummer, uh, we sounded like us as opposed to, hey, let's get a band together and then mm-hmm. you know plug in the uh, predictabilities. Uh, CBGB as a hothouse was always, as Tom Verlaine once said, each band was a separate idea. They were very different. Blondie was different than the Talking Heads. They were different than the Ramones, uh, television, mm. us. Um, and when it got this sensibility, got to England as England will, because it's a small country and uh, it 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 looks at style very rigorously in mm-hmm. a certain way. You know, you have to have a special look. You have to have a sound. And so when it got to England, it became punk with a capital P. Mm-hmm. It's not bad, you know. It d- defined itself as a as as a genre, and a lot of great records were made. But you kind of knew what those records were going to sound like. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, especially with the bands of CBGB, they were all very very different from each other, mm-hmm. and that was positive energy, at least from my viewpoint. But you know, like I said, we were a little bit older. We definitely had our roots. We weren't like, you know, the, you know, Sex Pistols or the Clash, you know, no more Beatles, Stones or whatever. No, Mm -hmm. we love the Beatles. We love the Stones. We used as much of their music within our music as we were capable. You Mm -hmm. know, we love Motown. We we loved uh, old R&B. We loved so many things. So we would never be a specific style. And mm-hmm. to me, that's one of the reasons why we've had such longevity, because you can come see us play and you know, we can get as as angry and dissonant and and uh, loud as you want. But then we'll next time we'll put on the acoustics and play a really hard on a sleeve, intimate song. Mm-hmm. We want the freedom to be everything. Uh, mm-hmm. Patty on the back cover of uh, Horses, you know, no yeah. gender, no politics, you know. Because, again, when you define something, you define its limitations. Mm-hmm. It's, it's as it, it makes it exclusive, but it also removes things that will change the, the shape and form of it. And we always wanted the ability to kind of flow between musics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's how we, we escape being, quote, sounds of the 70s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested in uh, CBGB as a place as well because I recently interviewed um, uh, a British writer called Andrew Hankinson who'd written a uh, a book about the comedy store. Um, and one thing that came across about that was sort of how much uh, the people who ran the comedy store were sort of or were and continue to be um, inf- influential on the sort of the the atmosphere and the success and the reputation of the place. Um, but it neither did it seem particularly kind of um, uh, planned in a way. It's just sort of it was the coming together of certain people, certain attitudes, and also the the physical space itself. Now I know CBGB um, closed back in what was it, the early two thousand two oh six, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
is how much for you was the the the, the sort of the physical space of CBGBs itself uh, important uh, as making it a kind of a locus for all of these bands and all of this energy? Well, very important for one, it's it's location on the Bowery at a time when the Bowery was not only not yet gentrified, but actually Skid Row, where mm-hmm. you had, uh, you know, uh, bums, you know, lying on the street. I mean, CBGB's itself was the bar underneath uh, a welfare hotel, you yeah. know, and so you'd be standing outside yakking with your friends and a bottle would come flying down <laughs> from, from the window. It was very unpretentious. It, it was, you know, hardly run. I mean, you know, the walls were covered with with uh, posters, uh, you know, the owner, especially in the early days, slept in the back room, Hilly Crystal, with his dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was kind of a dive. And uh, because it, it had no pretensions to elegance or sophistication, it became a home for these disaffected bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly very very important i mean even it's it's physical layout where because it was a very narrow room uh, so you would have to walk through past the bar and everything to get to the, the stage and the little uh place where you know people mosh pitted and uh so so it wasn't like set out like a concert hall you didn't feel like mm-hmm. you were you were uh you know on display really you were just like the local band playing at your uh your local honky tonk, and mm. it, it it created a sense of uh, casualness, of looseness, mm. and possibility that you might not have had in a place like, say, another New York club at the time. The Bottom Line, mm. which was more of a concert club, and seats, mm. and you know, um, you know, food, and you know, it it definitely. <laughs> It, it helped create the sense of the the music as kind of uh, off the beaten path, which mm-hmm. is usually where the best things happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just listening to you describe it there, just getting the sense of how something like that can't be can't be planned in a way. Absolutely not. I mean, if again, you know, I always think about the uh, a compilation album Nuggets that I did mm-hmm. of garage rock and celebrating his 50th anniversary this year, which is Mm. kind of remarkable. And if I would have thought that I would be talking about it 50 years in the future, I would have been very self-conscious about it. I would have screwed it up. And, (laughs) uh, you know, I I, I wouldn't have been the kind of album that would have lasted. You can't plan, you can't plan scenes. I mean, that's Mm. really the basic thing. None of these moments in time and space were conceived like, oh, we're going to get a place together and change musical history. Well, it it doesn't happen like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just very casual. And by the time it changes, you know, musical history, it's over. You Mm -hmm. know, it's moved out of its little, uh, you know, birthplace into the world at large. Uh, you know, when you try to plan a scene, I remember in the 60s, -hmm. they were trying to make Boston you know, the boss town sound. Well, yeah. you know, it, it sounded artificial because one of the things about these things is that they, they're they very organic. They grow underneath uh, notice of, say, even the greater gods of the music industry. 
you know, yeah. so they have a time, you know, by the time the music industry takes takes note, they've already started to happen. They've gotten their fans together. They've gotten their philosophies together. And then it's time to go out into the uh, wider world. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess maybe Malcolm McLaren could be somebody who tried to uh, tried to create a scene and to an extent he certainly succeeded did. for a while. He certainly yeah. did. And, you know, but, you know, as, as he's, you know, he wanted to sell a lot of trousers also. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, but yeah, I mean, it was also ripe. It wasn't trying to create a scene. It was trying to create an English response to mm. the upheavals that were yeah. taking place across, you know, you can say, okay, yeah, this is happening, but it definitely had a different character and a different motivation and a different cast of characters. Yeah, and arguably ruined a lot of lives in uh, <laughs> in the process of trying to uh, to create and manipulate a, a Well, scene. you know, that's you know, that's that's the price of Svengaliism. <laughs> right. <laughs> um Lenny, I I mean we've been talking for an hour now and I'm going to let you <laughs> let you go quite soon. Um but I could could go on talking for 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 hours with you. The book is so utterly fascinating. Um I just, I suppose where I'd like to to conclude, and, you know, I haven't even had a chance to talk with you about metal. Um, oh, yes, and, metal. I love the metal. metal. Well, you know, I grew up listening to Iron Maiden, so it's sort of, um, that was a chapter which particularly spoke to me. Um, oh, and I was and I was pleased to see it drawn into, um, into the history as well, because I can imagine often metal might be looked at as a bit of the kind of the, uh, the I don't know, the embarrassing child of, uh, of rock and roll. Yeah, well, but, that's, uh, you know, we love embarrassing children in rock and roll because <laughs> usually they take things about as far as humanly possible. And both Los Angeles and, uh, and Norway, man, those scenes were like very, very unique. And they mm. went really about as far as one could go in terms of uh, shock value. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you finish the book with a kind of um, an epilogue, uh, which you entitle uh, "Aftermath," and we've touched right. on this a little bit um, in the uh, in the conversation already. Um, where you essentially say that sort of you use that lovely expression, "a music outlives itself." Mm-hmm. So you know, with so with rock and roll, we still have we still have the music, but maybe it's not the sort of the the locus for these lightning strikes in the way that in the way that it um that it was um when you look around you now whether in music or or art generally do you have a a sense of where sort of lightning is striking and how or perhaps you don't see it as as your role as kind of a sort of a an elder statesman uh, of the of the rock and roll scene to kind of define where these are you mean an old guy um no, I'm elder I, statesman. Let's... <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll be an elder statesman. Um, I don't know. I keep my antenna up. Uh, I see a lot of good work being done. I see a lot of mm. things being built on rock and roll. Uh, my favorite group of the moment is a female band from Portland called Blackwater Holy Light, who seems to mm. have the the metal energy, uh, but definitely uh, has a lot of melodics on top of it. Um you know, it seemed like for a while, uh, electronic dance music, techno, mm-hmm. was was where the attention of uh, of uh, innovation was moving. Uh, I, you know, to be honest, I'm at this point. I'm just kind of a listener. Uh, things come to me. I'm not hanging out uh, in 
a geographic scene. I don't know if mm. they're even possible now. Uh, but I do believe, and also I believe that the music of the 21st century is just becoming uh, aware of itself in the same way mm. that in the year 1922, uh, you know, there was a sense that the radio had just been invented. Mm. Uh, you know, the flat disc uh, recording was on its way from acoustic to electric. These are the, the technological changes which will drive the shape of the music to come. We have so much mm. capability with uh, digital manipulation and you know, to be honest, I, I don't know where it's going. I, I'm not really partial to it except what comes to me randomly mm -hmm. and uh <clears throat> i just encourage it really i have i have no desire to have musical progression stop mm -hmm. when my consciousness stops uh I, I i know that the human impulse to make music is deep-seated uh to understand one's emotions through tones and levels of frequency response and harmonies mm -hmm. and 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 beats and and the way we communicate beyond language um but i like i really believe that somewhere in this great world in uh somebody's hideaway a music is being created and understood that will become the soundtrack of the 21st century mm. and i personally can't wait to hear it <laughs> mm. well, well, that seems like a perfect place uh, to finish on. Um, final question, and I know things are very unpredictable with COVID and everything, but any plans for you and the band to hit the road? Yeah, yeah, we have, you know, we're supposed to play locally uh, in uh, Brooklyn and up in Port Chester uh, for our postponed shows from the end of last year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's talk that we'll be in Germany this summer and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, perhaps France. Um I don't know. You know, like I say these days, when I'm at soundcheck, I know I'm playing. I've right. really, <laughs> I really have missed the, the visceral uh, energy of, of performing. Uh, and also, I know that I have 50 years of, of performing behind me. So really, I'm in the bonus beat category of whether mm -hmm. I get to play, you know, one of my favorite cities again. Uh, I feel more bad for bands that are, you know, in their 20s who have just finished their first record mm -hmm. and want to get out on the van and have their adventures. You know, I, I want them to to be able to have the same sense of freedom I had when mm -hmm. uh, I walked on the stage of the Elysee Montmartre in 1976 yeah. <laughs> and thought, man, I'm playing Paris. That is so great. <laughs> Yo. Well, Lenny, Lightning Striking is such a remarkable book. Of course, it's available from Shakespeare and Company, um, from our bricks and mortar store, also from our our website. Um, that's the that's the British edition, White Rabbit Books. I think there's an American edition as well, which our, our American yeah. listeners can get hold of. Yeah. Um, all that yeah. remains for me to say, Lenny, thank you so, so much for joining us today. And thank you so much, Adam. Enjoy. Uh the 100th anniversary of Ulysses. That is so great. And uh, hopefully I'll be in the store to uh, autograph uh, some copies of Lightning Striking. Uh, avec amour. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> Cheers, Lenny. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app. 
or just by recommending us to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.